I used to be rich. I used to have everything. I was Oliver Queen, the billionaire, the wonderkind, the golden boy, but that life is over. I was also the Green Arrow, a superhero, whatever that means anymore. Just a rich boy's pathetic attempt at doing something important, something meaningful. I'm Eddie Webb, and today we're going to talk about Green Arrow Volume 5, Issues 17 through 21, here on Speechless. Hello and welcome to the final episode of this season of Speechless. I've been going through uh, various uh, decades covering Green Arrow as kind of a counterpoint to my uh, Hawkeye coverage from the last season. And uh, this one is, frankly, yet another reboot of all of the reboots we've looked at. Uh, this one's a little more intentional. Uh, this was uh, 2013, so this is uh, the, was known as the New 52 era of DC. Uh, and quick summary on that. Uh, basically, around 2011-2012, uh, there was a year-long event comic called 52, where basically every week uh, an issue came out that covered a world where um, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman were missing for the entire year. Uh, so there's other comic events going on. They're missing for a year. This covers the year that they were gone and what happened during that. At the end of 52, uh, the multiverse, bad things happened, uh, and the comic continuity got completely rebooted. So if you remember me talking about Crisis of Earths a couple episodes back, it's a very similar thing. But unlike Crisis, where it was kind of a, a reboot and then the other comics would slowly get on board and some even didn't get on board entirely, uh, this was a very explicit, intentional crossover. Uh, or sorry, uh, reboot. Um, the entire company canceled all of their comics after this and started with 52 brand new comics. Uh, and this lasted for about five years. Um, so ended up being about, for some of the issues, like comics like with Batman, there actually ended up being about 52 issues before the whole uh, 52 scenario was shut down. Uh, so, um, this is about a year and a half after the Green Arrow reboot. So Brave uh, U-52 continuity was pretty controversial at the time. Um, it was seen as kind of a brave new world for DC. Uh, they're very much intent of providing a new ground level for people to uh, start these characters fresh. Uh not all of the comics went through the origin story. Um, some comics also, uh, it made just new characters to the continuity. Uh, but in the end, um, the new 52 continuity ended up wrapping up. Um, and then DC went into what was known as rebirth, I believe. Um, and then it was kind of a, yet another restart of things to get them back to the prior to new 52 continuity. Uh, so, long and short of it is, this is you know, the reboot, but at least this time, it's not a Green Arrow-specific reboot. It is a company-wide reboot. Uh, so, um, uh, we're also looking now at 2013. This is very firmly in the writing for the trade era. I talked about that a little bit last uh, episode. 
but with things like year one, that was kind of writing for a trade, but the, the series was designed around a trade, right? It's the, we're going to do this for six issues and then be done with it. So that was a little more intentional. When we're moving into even the ongoing series are largely written for trade paperbacks. And you'll see that with this, like I mentioned originally that uh, this is going to be issue 17 through 22 last episode. I, I went down 21 because in my reading for this, I realized that 22 is actually the start of a whole new arc. Um, and in this case, this arc is actually called the kill machine. Each issue is kill machine part one, the kill machine part two, the kill machine part three, the kill machine part four, the kill machine conclusion. So, you're going to see a lot of five-part storylines in the kind of New 52 era because that was the sweet spot was getting about a little over 100 issues, 100 pages of comic together that you could sell as a trade paperback. So um, we're going to see a lot more explicit kind of writing for the trade uh, pacing here. You know, there's going to be uh, – I think I personally think there's an issue kind of in the middle where not a ton happens. Um, in fact, the, the ending is – a little weak and forced, in my opinion. Uh, but let's, let's, let's kind of dive into that. I'll start with uh, issue 17, Kill Machine Part 1. And uh, all of these are written by Jeff Lemire, penciled by Andrea Sorrentino, uh, inked also uh, by Sorrentino. Um, yeah, Andrea Sorrentino also colored issue 17, but the other issues are colored by Marcelo Mialio, uh lettered by Rob Lai. Uh, and the first two issues were edited by Joey... Cavalieri, Kate Duray, and Matt Idelson, but then 19 through 21 were edited by Brian Cunningham, Will Moss, and Harvey Richards. And once again, a huge, huge thanks to the DC Fandom Wiki. Um, this it made researching these whole season so much easier to have that fantastic resource available. Anyway, issue 17. Oliver Queen has lost everything. He woke three nights ago to discover via the newspaper that Queen Industries was sold to Stellmore International by Walter Emerson. When he confronted his father's old friend and former CEO of the company that was to be his legacy, Emerson explained that he had lost the company because his attempt to protect Oliver from failure through QCOR uh, caused him to lose track of the main company. Uh, side note is that QCOR is, was kind of a side subsidiary company that was given to Oliver as his pet project and ultimately became the base for his Green Arrow operations. In the end, Emerson thought it might be for the best that they lost it all. Oliver had never learned to be responsible for himself, not even after his ordeal on Starfish Island, and he had never been truly ready to accept the Queen legacy. This last was a foreboding statement, but before Oliver could question Emerson, an arrow, Oliver's arrow, crashed through a picture window and pierced through Emerson's back. Confused, Oliver watched as the arrow sprouted further clamps digging into Emerson's body and then yanking it by a rope out through the broken window and down onto the street below. Emerson is surely dead. The commotion attracted the attention of building security in realizing they believed him responsible for it, Oliver defended himself and ran for his life. On his way to his warehouse, he called Jax, hoping to get himself suited up as Green Arrow with the help of his only remaining friends. Strangely, Jax's tone was nervous and his words were cryptic, warning that someone was making him and Naomi do something. Unsure of what that could mean, Oliver stood in the shadow of the Q-Corp building and was surprised to watch as the upper floors where Jax and Naomi had been exploded. In addition to framing him for Emerson's murder, someone had killed his only friends and destroyed his company. Thankfully, some safe houses remained in Seattle, and Oliver still had costumes and bows waiting for him. However, when he emerged from one of them in uniform, he found himself with an arrow aimed between his eyes. Bowman introduced himself as Komodo and promised to kill him, 
Komodo had found Oliver's stash of arrows at Queen Industries and had found the trick arrows quite novel, if childish. He used them against Oliver and with a greater apparent skill and much greater speed. Following his tank around the roof, Oliver and Komodo loosed arrows at one another at the same time, and though he missed, Komodo was not aiming for him, but rather at his feet. His arrow exploded into a kind of cement, sticking Oliver to the ground and leaving him vulnerable to Komodo's physical and verbal abuse. The bowman made further cryptic references to some kind of wasted destiny that Oliver had never known of before preparing to make his kill shot. At the last moment, Oliver was saved by a stranger whom Komodo referred to as the Magus. Not less, no less confused by the discussion, Oliver was helping to see as Magus blinded Komodo temporarily, allowing them to chance to escape together. Desperately, Magus warned Oliver that he was not supposed to be there in Seattle. Indeed, he was never supposed to have left the island. So right off the bat, um, we're seeing, I had talked before about kind of a synthesis Oliver Queen, and we're definitely seeing a stronger attempt at that in this version. Uh, we have the playboy Oliver Queen, uh, you know, who had a lot of money and used that money to invest in trick arrows. Uh, we have um, the year one storyline rolled into this one as well of him being stranded in the islands with the bow and arrow. Uh, and then we also have uh, some touches of the, the, the TV arrow um, of references to a, a, a father with a cryptic legacy and something mysterious that happened on the island. Uh, and looking at this comic, um, you'll notice that there's a lot of, a lot more information in that than we did like perhaps issue by issue in year one. Um, I had talked before about decompression. This is very much not that. Uh, in my experience, Lemire tends to write a little more densely. His style tends to skew in some ways closer to almost a bronze age level of density in story. Uh, but in particular, even just looking at this, um, if you look at the third page of the issue, there's one uh, uh, that that page has just on its own 13 panels. So, I mean, there's a lot of detailed story. Now, granted, that's all Oliver confronting the CEO of Queen Industries. And then the page turn is him getting shot with the arrow and then move that to more kind of attritional for this era, three and four panel section. Um, so some of that is probably intentional, but we're definitely looking at a, a slightly higher density of, of story and text than we saw even six years ago. Uh, so these things do fade in and out of fashion. Um, there's definitely trends that tend to be followed. Uh, but if a particularly hot story happens, um, some or like it's literally like for a while after Watchmen nine panel grids became very popular for quote unquote serious stories. Uh, so sometimes those things will, will, will fade in and out, but also in my experience, um, when you have this implicit boundary of five issues becoming a very explicit, very real boundary, sometimes the story needs to be squished to fit in the space. Sometimes it, it doesn't quite fill the space. And this is one example where I think kind of both happens to a degree, but we'll get into that. Um, another thing is uh, this is happening about a year after Hawkeye had started. And I can see some stylistic nods to that. Uh, there are 
inset panels, uh, for example, uh, if you look at the one on page five, uh, when uh, the CEO gets shot in the back, there's a little inset panel in the second to last one of him looking across the street to see where it came from. And it's just a building with a bunch of windows, but there's one window in particular that's framed and it's colored white as opposed to the green tints overall. Uh, and and it, it very much reminds me of uh, Aja's style from Hawkeye. So I have to think that there's uh, some inspiration happening in both directions. Uh, similarly, on page six, uh, when the man gets yanked out, um, it's actually almost entirely black and white except for a green wash on the windows, but all the, you know, a little bit of blood too. But uh, everything else is purely monochrome. And that's something you'll see as a tendency in this series specifically, but also in a lot of the DC comics the past 10 years is where they will change the color to emphasize a moment. I talked about this a little bit in the previous episode, but in this case, dropping all color but green out of a panel to emphasize the action on the panel, uh, uh, particularly, again, kind of Aja style where the action uh, of, of a scenario may be drawn out, but then there's small inset panels to draw attention to specific moments inside that action. And those panels have a color change to, to make that attention draw a little clearer. There's a good example of that at the bottom of, of page seven. Um, it, for me, I, I, I don't quite gravitate to the style of art. It took me a while to get used to this after a few issues. I do think it's extremely dynamic art, uh, which is great for a comic like Green Arrow because it's, again, kind of like Hawkeye. It, it's gritty. It's, it's a little more down to earth. It's not quite as down to earth as Hawkeye. I mean, you know, we're still looking about uh, billionaires shooting each other with bows and arrows. So on some level, there's still the kind of comic logic happening here. But um, the kind of sketchy grittiness and, and the, the coloring helps to kind of, I think, sell that world a bit. So while the art's not to my personal preference, I definitely appreciate what's happening here. And it, after a couple of issues, I just kind of got used to the style. So that was fine with me. Another thing is, uh, the, I'm going to talk about the coloring here. This is the first issue is the only one that was actually colored by the artist. So um, it's actually flatter than even year one. We're not seeing the same shading level. Uh, the inks are carrying the, the shape the shifts in light almost entirely. Again, almost a kind of a bronze age style. It, on some levels, this is a comic that could have even maybe existed in the 90s in, in how it's colored, how it's written. It's actually weirdly uh, a bit of a throwback in that regard. And not an unpleasurable one. Um, but certainly there, there are modern touches, but... There's also some interesting kind of nods backwards in, in style. Uh, there's another great moment on uh, page 17. It's actually a two-page spread. Uh, business is one page in uh, digital comics um, where there's some great action between um, Komodo and Screen Arrow as they're firing arrows together. And the entire middle of the panel is just the two arrows very slightly missing each other as they're fighting in the rain and you can see the water flecking off of it. It's actually a really cool moment of slowing down the action and really putting attention on 
Justice Terrace, which of course are both colored green against a stark white background to really draw the eye to that. It's, it's, it's a great little touch. Um, but similarly, uh, there's on page 19 when Komodo's being attacked by Magus, uh, the inset panel drawing attention to the impact of Megas on Komodo is everything is in black and white except for the background is red, but that is inset into the larger full page action. So it really kind of helps to to, to communicate the, the the crunch, the impact of that moment just purely through color. Uh, so uh, all in all, for me, this is definitely a a kind of refinement of what we saw in 2017. Uh, it's not even more technique applied to it. It's now, okay, now that we have this, this wide array of techniques, now we can actually pick and choose from the different generations of comic storytelling and pick which ones we want to use to tell the best story in this moment, which I find really, really cool. Uh, so let's move on to issue 18, The Kill Machine Part 2. Oliver Queen has been hiding out in a shipping container after being framed for the murder of Walter Emerson by the archer calling himself Komodo. He had been saved by a blind man named Magus. Waking up from fitful sleep, Oliver discovered a note from Magus urging him to leave Seattle for the Black Mesa, but first he should search behind the bookshelf in Emerson's office for answers. Trying to keep a low profile, Oliver makes a call to Steve Trevor, begging for the chance to clear his name before the Justice League of America is called in. Trevor gives him just 48 hours. Elsewhere, Komodo returns to his home, where assistant Mr. Cripp urges him to attend the Stillmore Industries board meeting. He has them patching digitally and asks them what the company's progress on the acquisition of Queen Industries is. Dressing him as Mr. LaCroix, they explain that the murder of Emerson by Oliver Queen allowed Stillmore to buy up the majority share cheaply. Corey assures them that he intends to stabilize the company and return to the same greatness Robert Queen once strove for after some rebranding. Cucor, on the other hand, is beyond saving, and the aura is liquidated. The meeting is interrupted by his daughter, Emiko, whose gymnastic lesson he promised to watch. Oliver makes his way to the New Dragon restaurant, seeing a man named Henry Fife. The address is listed as Fife Communications, but in fact, he is currently just a delivery boy for the restaurant and is staying in an apartment above it. The owner directs Oliver to Fife's room and warns him that there is a new order so that he had better wake Henry up. Fife is surprised to see Oliver there, given that it was Oliver who personally fired him from his job at Q-Corps for stalking Naomi. But now Oliver explains he needs Henry's help because he was framed for Emerson's murder. Coming clean, Oliver admits that he is Green Arrow and explains that both since Jax and Naomi were killed in the Q-Corps explosion, he needs Henry to help him beat Green Arrow and hunt the people who killed them. At Stelmore, Emiko begs her father to sit at the next meeting, and obligingly he agrees, though he warns it could get messy. In fact, he has both Jax and Naomi captive, and their deaths were staged. He warns them that because they were presumed dead, nothing can stop him from torturing and killing them now. As such, they must agree to work for him or die. I'm going to compromise his integrity again, Jax refuses, and true to his word, Komodo fires an arrow through his head at point-blank range. He takes aim at Naomi, who immediately agrees to help find Oliver. Komodo warns that she had better find him within the hour, or his daughter will cut off the fingers. The exchange is overheard by Magus. Oliver and Henry take stock of what few assets Oliver has left to him, with just a few of his trick arrows left, and nowhere can he safely go to replenish them. Fortunately, Henry is about is already having ideas for new designs, but Oliver has other plans in mind. He needs Henry's help, first and foremost, infiltrating Queen Industries unnoticed so that he can get, find the clue that Magus hinted at. Henry admits that he will need to access the on-site computer so he better start loading his truck. The truck, though, is a delivery truck. Henry points out that as much as delivering Chinese food is a waste of his potential, is always what anyone had ever said about Oliver's Queen's life, too. 
Charlie Oliver is in Emerson's office and isn't long before he discovers a hidden button that opens the door behind the briefcase. Bookcase, sorry, bookcase. Though it lies what appears to be a trophy room, they're not just Emerson's trophies, they're Oliver's father's. A set of photos he discovers shows Robert Queen with Emerson, a third man who Oliver does not recognize, though it is in fact LaCroix. A beach in the background, though, is one Oliver recognizes all too well. It is the island for which he is stranded for a year. Elsewhere, LaCroix is informed by his daughter that Naomi has found Oliver Queen at the in Queen Industries Tower, and he prepares to fish Oliver off. Henry warns Green Arrow that someone else is in the room with him, and Oliver spins him spins around to find Megas there. He warns Oliver to leave for the Black Mesa immediately, as he answers he seeks a way for him there. And if he doesn't leave, Komodo will kill him. Cryptically, he answers Oliver's questions about his father's room with another question. Has he heard of the outsiders? Oliver is not in Maze warns that if Oliver does not leave, he will not be able to protect him anymore. Before long, it is too late, and the police arrive. While they have been ordered to hold off on arresting Oliver Queen, Green Arrow is fair game, and he is trespassing at the crime scene. Eager to escape chapter, Oliver fires his last grappling arrow, the same kind of arrow that killed Emerson, out of the broken window, and uses his bow to slide across the gap. Halfway across, though, an arrow shot by Komodo cuts the line, and Oliver falls towards his imminent death. And he dies, and that's the end of the miniseries. The rest of three issues are just blank pages. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, so again, we have a pretty heavy story issue on this one. A lot happens in this one. Uh, again, uh, using color for emphasis, this time uh, on page two, there are two panels which appear to be a flashback of Oliver being taught how to uh, shoot a bow and arrow. And again, all the colors dropped out except for the green of his shirt and the green of the bow. Uh, so now the same color change is being used to uh, sell a flashback. So it's a, an interesting way of drawing attention, but also to, to sell a change in scene just for a panel here and there. Uh, anyway, um, as I mentioned, the colorist uh, changed to this issue, and we're seeing uh, a little more depth of color already. Uh, it's not just relying on uh, the inks to sell the color change. It is happening in the, the dropout panels. So like those two flashback panels talked about, that is just using the ink to sell it. But like the other uh, images of Oliver in the desert, we're seeing more gradations of color. Um, so there's kind of a, a change in that. And you can see kind of what uh, someone who's thinking about coloring exclusively can bring to a comic as opposed to someone who's trying to do color in with all of their, all the rest of their art duties. Uh, again, we have on page uh, five, a huge, Lot, a lot of text, a lot, a lot of conversation happening in it, uh, uh, which again, it's 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 Jeff Lamar's style, so I'm not mad about it. But it is an interesting change compared to uh, what we saw in year one. Uh, in color coding, um, we see uh, Komodo firing arrows at targets, and all the targets are colored green. And again, it's very it's very Aja inspired. Uh, the the green targets uh, and using green as an accent color uh, very much calls to mind the similar use of purple in uh, the Hawkeye comic. Uh, and, and frankly, as I kept reading this, I, I really kept getting uh, a flavor from like, oh, this is this is just like the Hawkeye comic. Some whether it's a turn of dialogue or a visual thing. Um, I, I personally feel like the Hawkeye comic is better, but I can certainly see what this comic's trying to do, and I respect the heck out of the fact that it's trying to do that. 
Um, particularly if you look at page 12, um, when he, when uh, Oliver's looking at all the arrows he has left, the way that the inset boxes are showing the arrowheads of each of those, again, very much like the Hawkeye comic, although Aja's very precise mechanical style, I think, sells that kind of scene just a little bit better. Um, other than that, like I said, this is a very kind of dense issue. There's a lot of word balloons until you get to that final splash page of Oliver falling, which is very minimal. Uh, it's, it's all the, the picture of him falling towards the camera, as it were. Uh, a, two or three inset panels where the colors dropped out. One is black and white with touches of green. The other one is black and white with, with a huge red splash. So it, it's very, very clearly uh, a way to kind of draw attention. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's kind of go into uh, issue 19. I'm kind of ripping through these here real quick. Uh, the Kill Machine Part 3. While falling to what would be likely to be his death after Komodo shot through his grapple line, Green Arrow manages to get a grip on a half-finished building scaffolding, which happened to be the same building from which Komodo fired his miraculous shot. As Green Arrow is a wanted man, since he broke into the crime scene of Walter Emerson's murder, police helicopters soon surround them. Worried that Komodo would kill the helicopter pilots, Oliver shoves an arrow into his ankle to distract him. As the man falls, he grabs Oliver, and both of them fall together. Thanks to trick arrows, the fall is cushioned in a flood of green foam. Meanwhile, Naomi Singh is still being kept hostage at Stonemore Tower under the watchful eye of Komodo's daughter, Emiko. Naomi begs to be let go, but the little girl warns that she should be happy to be alive, considering that Green Arrow is a fake and needs to be wiped out entirely. She could kill Naomi in numerous ways herself if she were allowed to. Knowing that she is still needed, Naomi dares to laugh, stating that no matter his flaws, Oliver always finds a way to win in the end. Even so, Emiko warns she could be there, she'll be there to avenge her father. Covering from the fall, Oliver is surprised by Komodo, who completely reminds him that he doesn't deserve to carry his bow. Both men loose arrows at each other at once, but Oliver realizes to it that his arrow he loose had an explosive tip. As two arrows collide, both men are knocked back by the blast. The result is that Oliver is shaken and his bow is broken. Komodo, on the other hand, seems fine. Dismissively, he loses an arrow straight into the air and kicks Oliver into the wall, explaining that a true archer has no need of a bow or arrow, only a target. As he says this, the arrow he loose plummets down from the sky and pierces Ollie's shoulder. Another, another, another pierced all of Oliver's limbs. Lifting Oliver's weak form up off the ground, Komodo adds that the man who taught him that was Oliver's father, Robert, right before he killed him. Oliver is confused, as he's always been told that his father died in a helicopter crash while he was stranded on the island. In fact, Komodo replies, the air helicopter crash had been his work, and when Robert Queen stumbled from its wreckage, he had found Komodo's bow and arrow aimed right between his eyes. His expression then had been the exact expression that Oliver has now. They were interrupted again by the SWAT topter, and Oliver is left with no choice but to use it as a distraction, despite his earlier attempts to protect the innocent inside of it. In a brief moment of distraction, Oliver yanks Komodo's bow from his hand and loses an arrow into the Anne's shoulder, knocking him off his feet. Before it can fall to his death, Oliver grabs him and demands to know who he is. Meanwhile, Henry Fife warns via communicator that the chopper may not wait much longer before attacking him both. Komodo teases that Magus must be still be giving Oliver cryptic riddles instead of the outright truth. For Oliver to get any more out of him, another of Komodo's arrows pierces his own shoulder, this time fired by Emiko. Komodo warns the girl to get out of there before she gets herself killed. Confused by having called his enemy Daddy, Oliver can see well enough that the girl knows how to handle a bow. So police are getting impatient, and if they start shooting, Oliver worries things will get much worse. Grabbing a net arrow to subdue her, Oliver aims the bow at her, only to have her snap the bowstring with one of her own arrows. A second shot that he doesn't expect pierces his thigh. 
Giving up, Oliver makes a run for it and dives into the construction waste tube and calls for Henry to come and get him. Meanwhile, Kimono kills the helicopter pilot with just one arrow through the head. The chopper loses control, hitting its twin, and both collide with a ring of police cruisers parked on the street below them. Komodo explains to his daughter that this is war. Henry manages to find Oliver, but when Oliver manages to yank Imiko's arrow from his thigh, the pain causes him to pass out, and Henry worries his new partner will soon bleed to death. So, something I've been, I was noticing, I didn't notice it initially, but as I'm doing these recaps, I notice is that, uh, again, very Hawkeye style and that each of the cliffhangers is ultimately some form of green arrow is in a bad situation and may possibly die. He's flung from buildings. He's bleeding to death. That, that definitely seems to be a strong trend. And it's, it's an interesting technique. It's not exclusive to Hawkeye and green arrow. Uh, Daredevil comics tend to do this a lot too. Uh, so, but it's a very strong street level hero trope of these guys are just human. And Ostensibly, the argument is uh, they're very fragile and anything can kill them. In fact, they usually have a superhuman level of resilience compared to a real life person because they're still superheroes. So, it, but in the context of what other characters might be in the situation, they do seem like they they, they get beat up a lot more, and this kind of almost crime drama cliffhanger structure of the, the hero is in mortal peril definitely resonates throughout this, this five issue arc. Uh, art wise, um, we do have another uh, full page splash on page five of Oliver falling from building. So, I mean, it, it does seem to be almost a, a trope at this point, but you know, I, I, I can certainly forgive it because I mean, again, we've had a lot of this in previous runs of green arrow and also, in a lot of, of Hawkeye comics. So, I mean, it, it, it's, 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 it works well for what it does. There's an interesting uh, technique on page eight where all the backgrounds are just a solid red and uh, a lot of the background components like the computer screens, the chair and whatnot are also washed in red to a degree. And in particular, um, when the characters are far apart from each other, the, the the character that is in the distance gets absorbed by that kind of red wash. Their, their colors aren't quite as vibrant. So it's a way of kind of showing distance between characters uh, without actually blurring them out or, or having one be kind of out of focus. Uh, so it's a, it's a nice, subtle touch that, that I really appreciated. Uh, also um, on page 10, when Oliver's shooting the explosive arrow, a neat little thing where uh, uh, Komodo now has red's accents uh, and Oliver's green accents. Uh, and it's been not consistent, but for a lot of the Komodo uh, inset panels that draw attention to him, red's been a strong accent color. Um, so there's a red background behind his arrow and a green background behind Oliver's arrow. And then when they're touching, uh, Komodo's arrow is red and Oliver's is green. So it's a way to kind of differentiate whose arrow is which. It's very clear and easy to follow the action because also all of Komodo's uh, action is pointing to the right and all of Oliver's action is pointing to the left. So it's extremely clear all the way through, but also a nice visual contrast all the way through. The red and the green really help keep that action extremely clear as you're reading down the page, which is nice. Um, there's a great 
splash page on 12 where I talked before just a moment ago about how the, the red as the accent color. Um, this is now the entire page as opposed to just inset panel, the whole page. Because this is also the revelation of Komodo is the one who killed Oliver's father. Um, so it's both a physical action because Komodo is holding it up off the ground as Oliver's been injured, but also an emotional gut punch. And by making a splash page, which is not a heavy action page, but rather an emotional beat, is a really cool touch. I think it's a nice bit of, of, of pacing on the artist's part. And then the next full page is page 15, um, where Emiko is uh, holding an arrow to Oliver Queen, but she's also talking about her father. She's like, get the hell away from my father. So both the splash pages involve various characters' fathers. So I don't know if that was an intentional symmetry, but it was a, it was a, again, a nice little kind of connective tissue there. Uh, and then uh, let's get on to issue 20. Uh, and I know I'm, I'm kind of flipping through here, but I mean, I, I don't want to kind of repeat a lot of stuff I said. Again, when you're writing for the trade like this, uh, we have a consistent art team. We have a consistent writer. We have, you know, largely consistent editorial team. This is meant to be a cohesive piece. Um, and in this era of comics, it's much more likely that if there's going to be artist change, it will happen between arcs. So I haven't looked ahead, but like if there's an artist change after the kill machine, it'll probably happen after it won't happen in the middle of an arc. They want to have a strong visual connectivity when they combine those uh, issues together in a book. So a lot of stuff I would have said in issue one, I'm going to say in issue four or five. So that's why I'm kind of ripping through this. Uh, but anyway, yeah, issue number 20, uh, the kill machine part four. After Green Arrow nearly escaped him with a dangerous wound and nearly winding up dead himself, Komodo is helped back to his bunker by his daughter Emiko. Despite her brave rescue, he is annoyed with her for having shown weakness by calling him Daddy in public. Such behavior demeans the Arrow clan. Komodo checks in with his superiors, who complain Oliver Queen's continued survival is an unacceptable affront to their clan. They regard Stelmore's acquisition of Queen Industries as trivial, despite the fact that they are using his company as a front. They warn him that he must shut down his operations in Seattle and return to Prague, lest they send the bear after him and his daughter. Angrily, Komodo vows not to leave until he finished what he started and decides to task his hostage Naomi Singh with one final job. Oliver is awakened suddenly by Henry Fife, who alerts him to a live Q-Corp feed on his computer, showing that Naomi is both alive and in danger. With only a few hours left to clear his name before the JLA swoops in, Oliver determines that they have to deal with this as soon as possible. This, despite his injuries, which have not yet healed. Regardless, Oliver knows where he needs to go next, the Queen family mausoleum. There, Oliver discovers Naomi, who is still alive, but has a bomb strapped to her. It has just two minutes left and is rigged to blow if he tries to remove the arrows holding it in place. As he attempts to defuse it, he feels the thunk of one of Komodo's arrows lodging itself in his quiver. Desperately, Oliver gives chase, simultaneously calling Henry to try and save Naomi in the meantime. Komodo teases Oliver, leading him away as they exchange arrows in the rainy graveyard. Henry, meanwhile, tries to cut the cable on the bomb without killing the woman he had stalked briefly, and himself. Finally, Henry cuts the cable and saves their lives, allowing Oliver one less thing to worry about as he surprises Komodo from behind. As such, Komodo is a stronger hand-to-hand -hand fighter, and he breaks Oliver's nose with his mask. Standing over him, Komodo reminds of how he had the first met. They stated that he would be the death of Oliver. Oliver remarks that Komodo had also told him that Church doesn't need a bow. 
Grabbing up an arrow in his fist, Oliver thrusts its point into Komodo's eye. Before he can remove the man's mask, though, Komodo throws a smoke bomb and escapes, leaving only Oliver, Henry, and Naomi behind when it clears. Turning to Naomi, Oliver apologizes for involving her in his business, and he re she reassures him that she chose it because she wanted to be part of what Green Arrow was. She still wants to help, and she can do this first by clearing Oliver's name with the backup of security tapes that she doctored at Komodo's behest. Komodo, meanwhile, is on the run, and Oliver has one more lead to follow. One week later, Oliver has traveled to Arizona on his way back to Black Mesa, where he is directed by Magus for answers. While driving through the desert, he is stopped by a sheriff who knocks him unconscious unexpectedly at Magus's behest. Oliver spends the next several hours wandering, wounded in the hot sun, until he finds a tent where Magus is waiting for him with answers. Uh, so, I had talked before about uh, the kind of synthesis approach to uh, Oliver Queen. And one thing I did not mention, but uh, reading this recap reminded me of, is that this is also a little bit of Connor Hawk synthesized into this, because this whole being part of a mystic tradition was absolutely not Oliver Queen prior to the 90s, uh, or even prior to this. Uh, that was very much Connor Hawk's thing was like he was he grew up in a monastery and there was ancient conspiracies and whatnot that really wasn't oliver queen's aesthetic uh so this is an interesting synthesis of both oliver queen and his son to a degree into making a fully realized green arrow concept in in the new 52 uh so aside from that um one thing I do want to kind of touch on is uh, the the rain in the graveyard. Previously, we had a rainy scene. It was basically just kind of black lines on the page with a little bit of uh, dripping drawn on the arrowheads to show that there was raining. Uh, but looking at pages uh, seven and eight, there's actually a great touch where um, the color is whiter and brighter around the areas where the rain is hitting. So it looks like it's almost like kind of uh, steaming around like the, the top of Oliver's hood, the top of the wall he's standing behind uh, around his arm and the like, and even uh, the different mausoleums behind him. So it's a really beautiful way of giving that rain a lot more depth and texture than it had even the previous issue. Um, there's some more great examples of that on, on page 10 as it's bouncing off of Fife's head. And so you can see kind of the white around the top of his head and the top of his shoulders is being rained on. It's a beautiful, beautiful way of, of telling the art. Um, but uh, I mentioned before how there's a lot of density in writing in the previous issues. And that really kind of tapers off here around about a third of the way through the book. So around 9, 10, we get into the, the final fight. It becomes pretty rapidly decompressed. There's a lot of dialogueless panels. Um, there's a big splash page. We move to four panel page uh, pretty quickly. Um, and the whole thing just feels like the story ran out a bit, so it had to get stretched out. And really, this kind of, if you dropped the last two pages of this comic, this would be kind of just the end of the story. It's a like, Kill Machine ends here. Uh, we have one more issue to go. And it's even kind of, of positioned as a conclusion. But really, it's uh, a bridging issue between this and the next arc, because all of this is part of a much wider uh, uh, event known as the War of the Clans. Uh, 
So th- this is the, I believe um, it's, it's listed as like about 20 issues on TC infinite. So, I mean, this is a big, long meaty storyline comprised of several arcs. Uh, but this last issue is really kind of just a, a synthesis issue. So, I mean, I talked about that the pacing can be off when you're doing this writing for the trade thing. And this is a decent example of it is the story kind of runs out halfway through. And so we the fight scenes elongated and there's some really cool visual effects. I'm wrong. It's, it's a, a, a very uh, a visually interesting issue. But what was a very, a lot of dense story in the previous three issues starts to peter out in issue four um let's get to uh the last issue issue 21 uh this is the conclusion after being marooned in the arizona desert oliver queen has had a lot of time to think about his double life as the green arrow and he's come to the conclusion he was never worthy of what he aspired to be he has made too many mistakes and innocent people that he cared about got hurt or killed as a result he wasn't good enough he wandered for days until arriving at the tent of megas where he now demands answers the men had been cryptically hinting at some kind of destiny for him and he orchestrated the ordeal that led Oliver to this state. This time, though, Magus is open to giving answers and he invites Oliver to sit and talk. Oliver demands to know why his father was on the island when he later wound up stranded. Magus points out this was not mere happenstance that Oliver washed up there with only a boat to survive with. As Oliver prepares to hear the truth, he is suddenly overcome by the sensation that the tent is filling with colorful liquid and that he might drown. He realizes too late that he's been drugged with some kind of hallucinogen, where Magus explains as a lubricant for the discovery process. Oliver finds himself in a very vivid hallucination of the island, plagued by monstrous visions of the supervillains he has fought in the past, except for Komodo. Finally, he escapes into a vision of the past, where he sees his father as a younger man with his companions as they looked in the photo he saw in the secret room at Queen Industries. He overhears his father and Walter Emerson arguing. Robert Queen has brought them there in search of the original home of the Arrow Clan, which he read about in journals and maps in his grandfather's fault. Emerson, however, is not convinced the Arrow Clan is even real, despite the fact that the outsiders have obviously been in the island recently. He warns that Robert cannot keep shirking responsibilities to Queen Industries, not to mention his wife and son, Moira. Magus appears besides Oliver and explains that the outsiders are a collective of seven clans, each taking its name from a totem weapon, the Arrow, Spear, Fist, Shield, Axe, and a final forgotten weapon. He had been a member of one of these clans centuries ago. Robert Queen had become aware of the outsiders when he discovered a secret vault belonging to his great-grandfather who was once the head of the Arrow Clan. Whoever possessed the ancient totem weapon of each clan was its head, and each head became one of the outsiders' inner circle. These totem weapons are not merely artifacts. They are said to imbue true enlightenment upon their possessors. Oliver Scars, the third man with his father, is Simon LaCroix, the man who now calls himself Komodo. Magus explains that LaCroix is everything Oliver was not. He was born to poverty, had nothing to live on but ambition and smarts. With those, he rose to prominence in Queen Industries. LaCroix was everything Robert hoped Oliver would be, as Oliver was merely a spoiled teenager at the time. Fortunately, LaCroix killed Robert in order to possess the legacy of the Arrow Clan once he learned it was real. The story Emerson had told Moira and Oliver of Robert's death was merely a cover to hide Robert's secret obsession with the Arrow Clan from them. As this news began to increase Oliver's stress, he is suddenly shaken from the hallucinations into reality by a vision of a massive and ferocious dragon with three heads. Oliver finds much of the story hard to believe, but Magus ensures him that his affinity for the bow was no accident. While Robert had tried to instill an understanding of archery in Oliver from a young age, he had never cared to take it up in interest. That was why, after Robert was killed, Emerson arranged to have Oliver stranded on the island with nothing but a bow in order to prepare him for the day that Komodo inevitably came for him. 
Magnus explains that Komodo wants to become a member of the inner circle of the outsiders, but the group is using him as the public face of Stelmore, which is their front corporation. Following wishes to find them, he has to find the three dragons that he saw. It's likely that Komodo is represented by one of those dragons, but since Oliver saw two more, it's likely that two more others await. Magnus had an idea of who another of them might be, but he says nothing of who it is. Magnus prepares to leave, leaving Oliver with the man called Butcher, who had been the man to attack him on the highway in the first place, stranding him in the desert. Instinctively, he loses an arrow at the man, only to watch him slice the arrow in half with an axe. Oliver quickly realizes the man is a member of the axe clan. Magnus states that John Butcher is a friend, and the man's expression softens as he offers his hand to Oliver. Butcher states that they should trust each other if they want to survive against the outsiders. Magnus reveals the second dragon is currently in Vodhalva, a tiny country in the mountains of Eastern Europe. He warns that Oliver will face his greatest challenge ever there. Oliver responds that despite losing to Komodo twice, he is only further motivated to pay him back for all the blood he spilled. Oliver returns to Seattle and rendezvous with Henry Fife and Naomi. Despite her recent brush with death, Naomi insists on coupling Oliver on his trip as part of the so-called Team Arrow. Komodo has terrorized her for days and killed her partner, Jack. She will not let that go unanswered. Despite being officially broke thanks to the destruction of Qcor and his own foolishness, Oliver insists that his JLA's salary will be able to support them, and besides, he has little interest in Queen Industries anyway. It's time for him to become something more than a corporate leader. It's time for him to become the man of the people to fight the corporate system as Green Arrow. And so, yeah, this is very much the setup for the next stage of this larger storyline. And for doing that, it's fine. Um, but it's kind of a weird ending it, it's the this if this was an ongoing series in the older style this would be fine right it's just a, it's another issue in it but it's specifically listed as the conclusion of the kill machine and it kind of is i mean it talks about komodo and why he did the things he did and how it relates to robert queen so in a sense of wrapping up the storyline uh, some of the plot bits to explain what happened in the previous four issues, it works pretty well as that. But it's also clearly setting up for the next story. And again, for an ongoing comic, that's fine. That was That's the intention. So it's weird that this is positioned as a conclusion to the previous storyline. It really felt feel like it should be its own separate issue. Let, let it be explicitly abridging, but not positioned as its conclusion. So we're starting to see where the tensions of pacing well for an ongoing series are running up against the ne corporate needs of making these things fit into nice trade volumes. Uh, so, and this is something I, I don't think has ever been reconciled, right? I mean, uh, if you, I, I, a lot of these days I do read trades as a way to kind of follow comics that I like. I don't buy many of them issue to issue anymore. And there are certainly times where it's like the entire trade was kind of meh. Or um, it, it, it's clearly kind of between, you know, stories one and three. Uh, it's not like, say, manga, where it's literally just, okay, I have arbitrary page counts and we'll fit in many chapters of the page counts again and then move on. It doesn't matter if those chapters hang together or not. Uh, I've been reading through uh, One Piece, for example, and there's been a couple of volumes where it's the first half of it is wrapping up one story and the second half is starting the next story. So it's like it's, there's no attempt to keep a cohesive story. Western comic collections try to cram them into stories more often than that. It, it, it doesn't just sell, okay, no, this is, you know, trade volume 45 of the ongoing series. It, it does try to, to, to 
narratively combine these things and that that shapes how the writing and the creation process of these comics. Uh, other than that, I mean, there's some really cool uh, psychedelic effects. It's actually more muted than some of the previous psychedelic effects we've seen in other Green Arrow comics. Um, but other than that, I mean, it, 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 it visually interesting, lots of interesting kind of compression and twisting of art to try to sell these things. A couple of really good two-page spreads to kind of sell the, the weirdness of it. Uh, I do like the fact that... Um, Oliver and Magus are upside down during the recollection. It helps to sell the surreal nature of it combined with the very flat colors. Um, like each person is decked out in shades of all one color. And then like all the jungle is just different shades of green. So it, that, that flatness really helps to kind of sell the, the surreal weird nature of, of the flashback as it were. Uh, but other than that, I mean, you know, it's it's just kind of it, it's the middle point of the story. So uh, that that's the the wrap up of the Kill Machine is buy the next run of comics, which you know that's that's comics. I mean, it's, it's serialized narrative, so that that's going to happen. Uh, so that's 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 my wrap up. What have I learned from all this? I I, I started this as a way to learn about. Green Arrow as a character. And I think what I've learned is that there are six different Green Arrow <laughs> characters. Uh, and that's not too surprising. I mean, Hawkeye is a very different character now than he was in the 60s. And I think if I did this for Hawkeye, there would be similar kind of strong differences between the characters. But there haven't been as many explicit intentional rewrites of Green Arrow as there have been with Hawkeye. There's a between a character evolving and changing to fit modern sensibilities and to fit corporate interests. It's another thing to have him just constantly being reinvented over and over and over again. So I feel like on the one hand, there isn't really a, th a Green Arrow through line. On the other hand, I do feel like each version of Green Arrow is taking the best bits of the previous versions and refining them. So each version gets closer and closer to a stronger ideal of who Green Arrow is. Uh, I started this off by saying uh, that my Green Arrow was always kind of the, the, the character from the series Arrow. That's the one that made me interested in Green Arrow as a character. And I can see the march towards that. I don't, I don't know if that's still my favorite version like i do appreciate the trick arrows for example something i kind of roll my eyes at a bit but as i've talked through this i've kind of realized that that's a part of comic book archers but more specifically of green arrow so i'm glad that while that was divested and i think it's important to divest ourselves of that to find the character for a bit i'm glad that to see that they're still coming back and that they haven't completely lost uh, the DNA of, of Green Arrow. Uh, but really, what this ended up being for me was a really interesting expression to different eras of DC Comics specifically. And it wasn't my intention when I did this. Uh, I knew that I was not as knowledgeable about DC Comics. Uh, so I knew there was some examination of that. But really, I do see that DC is a different company in the 60s than it was in the 70s than it was in the 80s than it was in the 90s. 
it, this is a company that has really strongly adjusted itself about every 10 years. And we haven't talked about it, but I mean, like, you know, the post uh, New 52 era, the rebirth era, as it's called, like that was another strong five or six years. And DC's kind of in the process of adjusting course again. Um, it's moving into kind of a, a post continuity era where it's not going to worry so much about continuity at all and just put out comics that are interesting. Um, basically, the month to month comics are still going to be kind of in a cohesive continuity, but going forward, there's going to be a lot of stuff written directly to trade paperbacks that aren't going to bother with continuity. And that's something DC is exploring now. Uh, so Marvel, it can be argued, has been a consistent story from 63 to today. It's been a rocky road, certainly, and it had some false starts and back trails, and there's definitely been a, a reboot here and there along the way. So it's not like it hasn't, it's not like it's a it's a cohesive story uh, in the sense that it's coherence, I should say. Um, but you could start reading 63, theoretically read all the way through, and find character arcs and threads and plot lines and connections in a way that DC, after the 80s, kind of starts stuttering through that. I don't think either is good or bad because as much as, you know, on the surface it's like, well, DC keeps reinventing and reinventing and reinventing and that feels bad. But at the same time, there's a lot of good stuff in New 52 that Marvel can't do. Uh, that DC has made serious attempts to try to introduce legacy into its characters in a way that Marvel is really struggling with because if Peter Parker just won't go away, you can never really have room for a Miles Morales unless you literally jam two universes together. Um, Marvel did more in the ultimate lines towards that, but DC does that in the mainline universe, if you will. So uh, I don't think either is good or bad. I definitely get a better appreciation of what DC tries to do and what people see in DC. And I can even see what people see in Green Arrow. I don't know if I would ever be inclined to follow Green Arrow month to month, but if there's an interesting collection of Green Arrow comics, I will be more inclined to give it a look nowadays because I have a better understanding of who Oliver Queen is. And I've gotten to like the guy. I think he's an interesting character. I think he's doing some interesting things. And it's a nice contrast and comparison to another character I really like from a different company. So in the end, I have become a fan of Oliver Queen. I've become a fan of Green Arrow. And I hope that you've come to appreciate Green Arrow a bit more throughout all of this as well. So that is my wrap-up for Season 2 of Speechless. Uh, I have some ideas on whether I'll do a Season 3. Like I said at the beginning, this is mainly done as a way to kind of give me and Chris some breathing room occasionally when, when, when timing gets tight. Uh, so I think these are always going to be kind of as necessity requires. Uh, but I have some ideas of what I might do for season three. I'm looking at possibly doing uh, some manga because I've been learning a lot about manga the past few years. Uh, and that's a nice additional counterpoint to the two big Western comic companies. Uh, but also looking at some indie stuff. I've been picking up things like Love and Rockets and whatnot. So there's some other things that are there on my radar to possibly talk about. And also I've never talked about the Transformers comic, which is one of my favorite comics in the world. Uh, so 
I still have a lot more comics nerdity that I can still do. But in the meantime, if you want to talk to me about comics, you can find me online at Twitter at Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. You can find my website at Pugsteady.com. Or you can find me hanging out on the Darker Hue Discord. Uh, So feel free to drop me a line. Tell me what you think about these uh, episodes. And uh, thank you for listening. (laughs) 